IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we talk about the Maddie Healy Taylor Swift dating rumors, the Ed Sheeran copyright lawsuit, and we yay or nay Aerosmith. Yes, very indie rock episode <laughs> this week. My name is Stephen Hyden and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He draws Atlantic Magazine covers for fun, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? You you heard wrong. I, I I redraw Atlantic Records covers for fun. So, you know, you might see my impressionistic and cubist takes on, I don't know, Stone Temple Pilots Core or 10,000 <laughs> Gex. Uh, it, 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 it's just like a, it's a rich tapestry. So my joke there is referring to something that I thought was very funny this week. Bono of U2... As if I have to say it. Yeah, there's only one the Bono. <laughs> Bono, the dentist from Denver. No, Bono of U2. Uh, he uh, drew the latest cover of Atlantic Magazine. It's uh, Zelensky is on the cover. And it was revealed when this cover was unveiled that Bono, as a hobby apparently, likes to draw Atlantic Magazine covers. I think... Like he gets the magazine in the mail, and then he'll, you know, draw the cover on his iPad. And um, I saw that this week, and I was trying to figure out, okay, what what's weirder, <laughs> Bono drawing Atlantic magazine covers for fun, or and this is what I think the scenario actually is, that he made up this idea that he draws Atlantic magazine covers for fun because he wanted to ingratiate himself. <laughs> to the editors at Atlantic Magazine. Because I, I, I guess I cannot comprehend that this is actually true, that Bono, when he's at home in Ireland, uh, nursing a pint of some Irish beer. This sounds more like a Larry Mullen Jr. thing. Bono, I, <laughs> I, I can't imagine, A, him living in Ireland or like nursing a pint or doing like anything normal. Well, he, I'm sure he has a home okay. in, in Dublin. I know they also have like a vacation place in the south of France. I think like they all have houses next to each other. <laughs> and like for real. I I saw that I feel like that was like in a 60 minutes interview or something. Um I just can't see one of the biggest rock stars in the world unwinding this way. But again, maybe this is something that Bono does. I I don't know. Like do you have any thoughts on this? I, I think that this is abs like this is absolutely the sort of thing I would expect Bono to do because, I mean, not to bring to, – to kind of underscore the indiness of this episode, you know, to bring up Elon Musk and people or just him or any billionaire anytime someone of that, you know, tax bracket makes an unforced error on social media – People say, you know, it's like if I had that much money, I'd probably just like chill and stay quiet and enjoy my money. No, when you're that rich, you're probably more likely to spend your time doing the same exact stuff you would do for free. And if you had to think about like what Bono, someone who is very like politically engaged and like seemingly liberal, but like not totally leftist, like what magazine they would read, it would absolutely be The Atlantic. And, you know, just kind of given their forays into other forms of non-musical art this is the exact 
Like, if I were to make this up about Bono, you would think, oh, it's a little too on the nose. So I, I, I'm not at all surprised by this, just surprised that it took until 2023 for it to be revealed. I totally buy that Bono would read The Atlantic, but this suggests that he's like a super fan <laughs> of The Atlantic, that he's like making like Atlantic fan fiction here he's like the type of he's like the type of dude to like know every single score of like emo albums i've reviewed for pitchfork except like he's i don't know uh, that for the atlantic i think those people exist i mean you know god bless them because uh, you know those of us in the media industry we need people (laughs) like bono who are just like so into the publication that yeah they're they're drawing the album covers or the the magazine covers. I mean, like these people that know every email score. Do you think that they're drawing, like the Pitchfork page, with your score on it? Like they're doing, like they're getting like the easel out and they're like, you know, doing, uh, uh, you know, photorealistic paintings of your reviews. I mean, that is the kind of fandom we're talking about. Here. I'm thinking it might be more like when Dirty Projectors made Rise Above, where they like covered damaged. Black Flag's damage from memory. Maybe it's more like that sort of fanfic where they try to like re- they try to remember like what I wrote about like that balance and composure album just from memory and to see what comes out. The thing like that that I have lately is when I wrote about the Red Hot Chili Peppers and I said that Stadium Arcadium <laughs> was the worst Chili Peppers record. <laughs> Which I is a totally defensible opinion. I, I stand behind that. I haven't heard enough of their albums to know if that's true or not, but it's definitely the longest and therefore like a good chance of being the worst. But anytime I write something now that someone out there doesn't agree with, that's the thing they bring up. It's like, oh, well, you think Stadium Arcadium is the worst Chili Peppers record, so that justifies your opinion <laughs> on XYZ. Like, you know, it, it's their way of saying you're an idiot. And you proved it when you said that Stadium Arcadium is the worst Chili Peppers record, which it is. I will defend that. You can put it on my gravestone. Yeah, we do not back down from making the hard calls here at IndyCast. Absolutely not. I, I, I'm doubling down now. I'm tripling down. Every time someone on Reddit brings this up, I'm going to quadruple down on it. I'm digging in my heels on the Stadium Arcadium take. Yeah, this, is, um, this is the hill that IndyCast is dying on. Oh, hell yeah. I'm dying on this hill, baby. I am not surrendering this hill at all. Um, before we get to the Maddie Healy, Taylor Swift stuff, because and we shouldn't spend a lot of time on that because that story is probably too annoying even for us. You know, like, <laughs> that's like a bridge too far even for us. But I, I, we want to do like a short episode of media cast. Right. We, we haven't done media cast before, but this is, we're going to do a short episode of media cast because... In the digital media world, which you and I have been a part of for a long time, it really feels like we're at the end of an era uh, this year. And you know, I'm, I'm I just started reading Ben Smith's book Traffic. I don't know if you've heard about. this Oh book. yeah, I've I've read like I read a really interesting review of it, and then I saw like a kind of a pan of it that most media people were retweeting. So I I, I, yeah. I want to read it before I read either review. I mean, I'm, in, I'm enjoying it so far. For those who don't know, this is a book uh, written by Ben Smith. He uh, was the uh, editor of BuzzFeed News for a long time. He was a New York Times media columnist. Now he's running a new media company called Semaphore, which does newsletters. And it feels like there's a lot of smart people in the media who feel like that's the direction that media is going in and that social media as a 
driver of traffic is over. I mean, at least that's the theory right now. <laughs> anyway, he wrote a book about uh, sort of the beginnings of like the modern digital media era. And he's focusing on BuzzFeed and Gawker and how those sites developed and how they rose to prominence and how they fell apart. Uh, and I'm just at the beginning of it. I feel like I'm going to be quoting this book though, probably in future episodes of this, of this show, but, uh, vice, uh, vice declared bankruptcy this week. That was this week, right? Yeah, I, I think it was this week. God, it's, it's been, a, as far as media cast goes, we could have had two episodes. There's just been so much going on and, and it's like is was it vice news or was it buzzfeed news that like a lot of stuff has happened in like billion like the billions type uh like like type tax bracket yeah i mean so vice news was already i think shuttered and then vice uh just announced that they're declaring bankruptcy uh, of course buzzfeed news was was shuttered uh recently uh there's been a lot of changes in sort of like i guess the legacy brands of of online media and uh, it's just an interesting thing because this news coupled with this book, it just puts a cap on this period of time. And it's just interesting to look at an era as being over that like you lived through for yeah. a long time. You know, and it's like, wow, okay, so I've now reached the point in my life where like an era of the business I'm in has ended and now something else is, is starting now. Um I don't know. I'm I'm curious for your take on this because, you know, I've worked in media full time for almost 25 years, and I've worked at a daily newspaper. I worked at an alt weekly. I've worked for websites. You know, I've I've worked all over in many different areas in this business. And in that time, I think about all the newspapers, alt-weekly newspapers, websites, magazines that have shut down. And I was thinking about all those this morning, and I estimated that the number of places that have shut down when I've been in this business is about, I would say, 10 million. 10 million <laughs> sites. Give or take 8 or 9 million. But something, there's been a lot. you know. And what I always see in the aftermath of someplace shutting down are media people going online, posting a lot, <laughs> apocalyptic tweets about how this is the end of the business. Yes. This is the end of the world. And then what always happens <laughs> one week later is that no one remembers the place that just shut down. Yeah. You, you instantly forget about Grantland you instantly forget oh, about Gawker. Oh, no, no, no. We, you we instantly... Mo we mo we, I, I more grant... More, more well, I do too, because I, I work you. there. <laughs> I work there. But I'm just saying, the world moves yeah, on. Yeah, totally. And, and and media changes, but it doesn't end. Um, but is this different? Are we in a different... Because uh, these are big places. I will say that if you look at what each one did, I think it's kind of obvious why they don't exist anymore. <laughs> And it's 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 basically the boogie night story in both cases. You have Dirk Diggler has some success. You know everything's going great. Yeah, what is the and prosthetic penis in this uh, metaphor? Well, it's probably Shane Smith. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you know you you have some hit movies, and then you buy a big house, you buy a fancy car, you start doing blow twenty four seven, and then before you know it, Johnny Wad comes along. <laughs> 
and he's the new kid on the block, and you're not the hot young thing anymore, and all of a sudden you realize that you've totally overextended yourself, and you can't justify the amount of money that you're spending based on the amount of business that you're bringing in. And you look at Vice and BuzzFeed, I think, you know, like, Vice had like a movie studio, they had a TV show, they bought like a big expensive office in uh, Brooklyn. Uh, They're doing all these things that they probably did not have the business to sustain, you know, once all the venture capital money dried up. I mean, BuzzFeed had a bureau in Australia, for crying out loud. Like, are they doing investigative reports on kangaroos? Probably. Are they like... Profiling Crocodile Dundee? You know, I'm, I'm trying to think of other Australian stereotypes I can say here. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I feel like you can explain why those places don't exist anymore. Uh, a lot of bad decisions were made. And I don't know if that's necessarily reflective of the business at large. And not to paint a rosy picture of the business. It's obviously very uh, troubled. But I don't know. I mean, is this apocalyptic, do you think? Or is this something that we're just going to move on from and people will hopefully find another place to work or how to make a living. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I wasn't sold on this being some sort of like sea change until you mentioned like Buzzfeed and Vice's legacy publications, which, you know, compared to the Atlantic, which has been around since, I don't know, probably the late 1800s. Like, I think they are kind of, uh, legacy publications because, you know, as much as we want to romanticize and, you know, you've lived through the kind of living on peanuts at the alt weekly, uh, phase of your life. I think like BuzzFeed and BuzzFeed News and Vice, that was the equivalent for people who came up in the industry in 2014. You know, a lot of people, like for all of the, you know, obvious, uh, you know, cultural, all, all of like the bad cultural shit that BuzzFeed and Vice put out into the world. And by the way, if you've never seen the documentary now, parody of Vice, uh, where Jack Plack plays based, uh, barely fictionalized uh, Shane Smith, at a place called drones, go check it out. It's, it's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we, we, usually we talk about on, on this show, I mean, these music publications that we only know still exist when they sh- announce that they're shutting down. And usually there are like a lot of people or not a lot of people, like very few. That's why they shut down in the first place. Uh, you know, some music writer, Twitter people talking about how the end of this publication or that is, you know, this real blight on our industry. And you know, I, I'm of the opinion that like music criticism, which is different than music journalism, doesn't need a lot of overhead or access to function. But, you know, BuzzFeed News and Vice, like they broke actual news. They did actual journalism. And so, I mean, we're, 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 resi- it's a resilient field and a different thing will, um, you know, a different thing will emerge in its stead. Uh, my own, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit torn up about vice shutting down if only because that was one of the go-to places I would, uh, pitch when I was more excited about a certain emo record than Pitchfork was. So, you know, shout out to Dan Ozzy. He really hooked it up back in 2015 or 16, but, uh, you know, you just look at these things like, you know, Morrissey, like, you know, all we gravely read the stones, all those people, all those lives. Where are they now? You know, Paper Magazine, Hold Your Head, BuzzFeed, Vice, um, just IndieCast at the end. You know what I mean? We are going to survive. Yeah, I mean, for people who like lost their jobs, I feel horrible. And I think they have a right to be upset and to express that. I just feel like there's a lot of people in the media like who aren't directly affected by this sort of thing. And 
they're always doomsaying about the business in a way that I find to be a little extreme and not necessarily reflective of the circumstances. Because, I mean, I do think that we are entering a time where uh, it's going to be less about scale and more about speaking to a specific audience. And that's related, I think, to how social media has changed, uh, how you, you know, doesn't seem like you can just milk Facebook and Twitter for traffic yeah. in the way that you used to be able to do in the 2010s. I still think that social media is good for individual writers uh, in terms of connecting with an audience, but as t- terms of publications, it, that doesn't seem like uh, it's really the magic bullet that it used to be. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm curious to see uh, how that changes. Um, and that's the end of this episode of Media Cast. Thank you for listening to Media Cast. We'll be hashing out more trends uh, possibly next week when someone else shuts down. We're like down. today explained on Vox. We're just doing like a tight 25 and, you know, not really offering too many opinions, just presenting it as it is. And we're in and out. This is the new IndieCast. Lighter, leaner, more aerodynamic. IndieCast is not aerodynamic. Media <laughs> Cast is. Yes. Media Cast is. TV Cast is. But let's get into indie cast here, uh, which again, this is not a very indie <laughs> rock episode that we have uh, today, unfortunately. And speaking of unfortunately, uh, do we have anything to say about this Maddie Healy Taylor Swift story? And this broke last night, yeah. uh, which which is Wednesday night this week. Yeah. That there's rumors that these two kids are dating, uh, and we were trying to figure out before we started recording if they dated in the past. Because I, I do think that there were rumors, right, that they were dating like in the mid two thousand. Probably ones maybe? that Maddie Healy put out there, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. This, is, I mean, we gotta get the writers back off strike. This is like the most clip show lazy plot line for indie cast imaginable. Like you said, it's like, is it too annoying for even us? I guess so in this phase, but I just want to know if this is really happening. What the mechanics of dating are for people like this? You know, it's like. Like, where do they go? Like, how many times do they need to be in the same place before they're considered dating? Or just real Mandela effect with this one, you know? Like, what are the double dates going to look like with Charlie XCX and George Daniel? Uh, You know, is this going to lead to a even more annoying uh, 1975 album about being in love? Or is it going to lead to, like, just the biggest shitbag, like, breakup album? Uh, uh, I mean... (laughs) From Taylor Swift's perspective, Maddie Healy does seem like the guy that you date after getting out of a long-term relationship. I mean, that seems pretty textbook. Yeah, rebound shit uh, right here, man. Yeah, yeah, he seems like a textbook rebound guy. So I can believe it from that perspective that this is actually happening. Otherwise, yeah, this this seems uh, like something that the replacement writers would come up with like, you know, yeah. like you got the real writers on strike or the right AI now bots, in Hollywood. You know. Exactly. This is like an AI generated storyline through and through to the point where even for us, yeah. where I feel like this could have been written for our show. I don't know how much I even want to get into this yeah. because it does seem like, uh, 
Yeah, it's it's too annoying even for us. And I, I never thought I would say that about our show, but it does seem true in this case. Yeah, I just, you know, I've mentioned on this show before, I work with like almost exclusively Swifties at my real life job. And now they got to care about the National and the 1975s. And, you know, it's it's my time to shine. I'm just, I, I, I am like waiting for them to either be like, who the fuck are these like bands? Or, hey, I'm really into this band now. Where do I start? And, you know, that's his... This is why they. This is why I have the job I do. I bring like you know, forty-something uh, white guy taste diversity. Well, along those same lines, there was a story this week that Phoebe Bridgers wants to collaborate with Bob Dylan. <laughs> so that's another you know like yeah. So do we. Young... I just want to put that out there. We are open to collaborating with Bob Dylan as well. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Bob, if you want to come on our show, <laughs> but I mean. That could actually happen, though. Sure. Phoebe Bridgers, Bob Dylan. Uh, and I, I just would love to see, like, Bob Dylan hearing about this and whether he's going to, uh, you know, consider it or whatever. Do you think Bob Dylan is a Boy Genius fan? Absolutely. Like, I have, I have so little doubt that he is. However, I think that, and I haven't read that book that he wrote with all the, you know, music criticism that got panned for, like, five minutes on Music Writer Twitter. Um, I, I think that he a likes Boy Genius and B has a very bizarre explanation as to why that is. It wouldn't be like, oh, I like their harmonies or like Lucy Dacus like writes very very on point lyrics. I I would love to hear his explanation for why that is because it is nothing that you could possibly come up with. I mean, if Bob Dylan was writing about Boy Genius, I mean, I can kind of imagine what the prose would be like. It'd be like, you know, they were too smart for their own good. <laughs> they were too smart to live on the road intelligence is not something you can buy it's something that is earned over time when you live like a hobo in a train car eating out of a tin you know it'd be something like that like that's Are the kind Tom of prose Waits that's in now? that book well that's the, that's how he writes <laughs> okay. and, I, I trust you on it's that just, like like in his book he kind of will take like one lyric of a song and just like riff on it for like a thousand words so he'll be writing about like uh, lionized by the eagles and he'll be Going into this like very sort of dark prose about uh, you know treacherous women and <laughs> you know being murdered in a gutter by uh, a vagrant you know like that kind of imagery is like very endemic to that book so yeah I don't know I th- I could see Bob listening to the Boy Genius record and enjoying it and then maybe he gets to the Leonard Cohen song and he's maybe a little offended by that because he's a he's him and Leonard Cohen were were bros yeah. so maybe he wouldn't like the Leonard Cohen diss or maybe he would enjoy it because bob has written many diss songs in his career so you never know he he's an enigma you, you can't really figure bob out um i want to talk to you about this ed sheeran copyright case and i know this is not an indie rock story at all although it could have implications for the indie rock community and, and just musicians in general mm-hmm. because for those who don't know ed sheeran is being sued by I mean, is that the proper terminology that he's being sued? There's, there's been a, a lawsuit that's been filed against him by the estate of uh, a person named Ed Townsend, who was the co-writer of Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On. And the the, the allegation is that uh, Ed Sheeran ripped off Let's Get It On for his 2014 song, Thinking Out Loud. And this is similar, if you remember, to the Blurred Lines case, you know, that Robin Thicke song uh, where the Marvin Gaye estate, it's always Marvin Gaye involved in yeah. these cases, uh, 
his estate uh, filed a lawsuit saying that that song ripped off uh, got to give it up. And the uh, court actually ruled in favor, the jury ruled in favor of Marvin Gaye's estate. So now you have this scenario where other people feel emboldened to file lawsuits for songs that aren't necessarily like taking like a melody or a lyric. It's more about like jacking a vibe. Yeah. From an older song, which if you listen to Thinking Out Loud, you could definitely hear a similarity to Let's Get It On. I also think that in no universe would someone <laughs> listen to Thinking Out Loud mistake it for Let's Get It On. It's like pretty clearly Ed Sheeran doing his, you know, spin on like a Let's Get It On type song, which to me does not equate to copyright infringement. To me, I think that's what music is. People are inspired by a song that they love and they try to emulate it. And in the process of emulating that, they come up with their own thing. And I think that's what Ed Sheeran did, but it's unclear as to whether uh, the court will agree that this is something that isn't, you know, just part of music. And if Ed Sheeran loses, uh, I think it could have pretty bad implications for musicians everywhere. Of course, what was talked about this week was a quote from this trial where Ed Sheeran said that if uh, that if he loses this case, that he's going to quit music. So, of course, all the music web- news websites jumped on that. Mm-hmm. Ed Sheeran's going to quit music if he loses this case. And you had every terrible Twitter comedian coming out of the woodwork saying, oh, this is great. Ed Sheeran's going to quit music if he loses this case, mm-hmm. which is the dumbest possible reaction that you could have to this. Yeah, I mean... And it almost makes me want to defend Ed Sheeran, even though, like, Thinking Out Loud is a terrible song. Have you listened to that song? It's awful. No, I mean, this is like... With the Marvin Gaye, like, estate suing Ed Sheeran, it just kind of reminds me of, like, how the USPS was, like, suing the Postal Service, the band, back in the day. Like, oh, you know, I expect Ben Gibbard to deliver my mail, and I'm so tired of being confused and misled by this. Um, Look, I... To your point about like about all the Brooklyn d- Dad Defiant type twit music Twitter accounts <laughs> posting about Ed Sheeran, like I- I'll just quote Drill, like under no circumstances do I gotta hand it to Ed Sheeran. Like I do think that he is he absorbs a lot of the hate people feel about pop music in general, but like are a little bit afraid to level at certain pop stars, but. Shape of You and Perfect are two extremely different songs that I despise equally. Like, I really, really hate those songs. Um, And I cannot think of a single Ed Sheeran song that I enjoy, which puts them at, like, a lower level than, say, Philip Phillips. Sometimes I hear Home, It Sprouts, and think, this this one kind of goes. And that being said, yeah, like... You almost got to defend Ed Sheeran here. It's sort of like with BuzzFeed and Vice where you think like, yeah, generally speaking, pox on pop culture. And at the same time, the implications of this happening are straight up bad. Um, I also think it kind of reveals that, you know, for in certain components of the music industry, and I think this came up a lot with Olivia Rodrigo's album, that one of the very, very few avenues towards making actual music revenue is just to like throw darts and sue people uh, and kind of just hope that either the judge will rule in your favor or that you'll get like a quick settlement. 
I think of this lawyer I knew in New Orleans who their most of their business was suing cash money records and getting settlements because you know regardless of what you're putting out there odds are cash money records did sign you to an illegal contract so um it's it's a nice little niche you can make for yourself but i think the question here you know i think the implications for music at large are bad and then i think to myself is this are these kind of lawsuits going to affect any musician I actually give a shit about, you know? Because uh, I mean, uh, the biggest examples are Olivia Rodrigo, um, you know, Robin Thicke, Pharrell, Ed Sheeran, like I Is this going to trickle down to, you know, when when we actually do an indie rock episode of Indie Cast like the sort of people that we might cover or is it just going to be going after the big pocket? Well, yeah, I think that's a good point that uh, a lot of the musicians that we like, they're not making the kind of money where you would want to do the throw a dart at something and try to cash in Mm -hmm. uh, because the money's not there. I mean, I think you can look at it from sort of like an ecological point of view where if the big dogs aren't, making money or they or they're under siege in this way that in some way that does trickle down to everyone else uh because those are the people that make the lion's share of the money and if they can't exist then there may not be a music industry (laughs) at all at least as we know it which maybe maybe that's not a terrible thing i don't know i mean i i i guess am against this from more of like a philosophical point of view oh absolutely i i just think that it's anti-music to crack down on artists, even artists we don't like yeah. in this kind of way, like the principle of it, because I do think that that's just an inherent part of creativity, that you are building on what came before you. And as long as you're not just straight up copy and pasting um, you know, lyrics or melodies or something, I don't think that jacking someone's vibe or, or riffing on someone's vibe is tantamount to copyright infringement. And I think if that is how uh, copyright infringement is defined, that that's just like a terrible thing for music. I don't, I don't think it should be that way. Cause again, I, I mean, I can't think of a, an album that I love that in some way doesn't evoke something yeah. that came before it. I mean, I think that's true of all music. I, I, I wonder though, if, you know, to play devil's advocate here, whether like, jacking a chord progression or a melody is actually more tolerable to me than like jacking a vibe because you know you think about that Volkswagen commercial where it was like, hey, can you give us like a beach house song but like don't sound like but like make it just different enough from Beach House and like Beach House won that lawsuit, I think. In some ways I feel like jacking the vibe is a little bit more offensive to me. Um when it's that overt. I mean like maybe the Deftones will, you know, just completely wipe out an entire swath of music being made right now because everyone's trying to sing like Gina Moreno without any swag. Um, I mean, maybe that would be good for advancement, you know, of, uh, of the art, but yeah, by and large, we can say this is bad. Uh, you know, you got, it sucks that it has to be Ed Sheeran for us to defend, but I've been looking for a reason, I think to defend Ed Sheeran, um, you know, he did fine in Game of Thrones, uh, but I don't think that's I don't think that's enough of a platform for us to reconsider uh, our boy right there. 
Yeah, I mean, he's someone that because I I saw this on Twitter too, where people were like, "Well, Ed Sheeran actually has some good songs." I'm like, "No, no he, he doesn't." doesn't. Ed, I, I'm sorry. I mean, Charlie Brown I had hose type type tweet. It no, <laughs> that is not true at all. And and like like Shape of You is like a detestable song, detestable, fucking awful. Because not not only uh, is it you know just so like weak, but it's like a sexy song that's weak. It's Ed Sheeran doing a sexy song. Like he has so many like sexy songs. He's allowed to, you know, Ed Sheeran's allowed to get his fuck on. Like whatever. <laughs> well, I'm not, he, he, I'm, I'm sure he's allowed to, yeah. but I'm just saying as music, it's not something I, I don't, compre- I can't comprehend like why this is something people want to listen to, but a lot of people do want to listen to it. Um, I mean, I defend Ed Sheeran because I feel like he gets ripped for the music he does. And Harry and Harry Styles does to me the same thing. Yeah, but he's just better looking, so people <laughs> are, are are more forgiving of Harry yeah. Styles. So on that basis, you know, of Ed Sheeran just being like a normal looking guy, mm-hmm. I defend him in that respect. I don't know if he's, he's normal like, okay, looking. He's got like a bit a lion tattooed on the middle of his chest. He, well, <laughs> he's like a regular. Yeah, yeah, I'm just more saying normal. he's not like. Yeah, he's not like a fashion model, yeah. handsome guy like Harry Styles is. He's just like a regular guy, and. Uh, and but he gets ripped for making like weak ass pop music. But Harry Styles makes weak ass pop music, and people treat him like he's a trailblazer of uh, modern pop culture and the new David Bowie and all that crap. Um, yeah, g- getting back to your you know jacking a vibe point. I mean, in some respects, I agree with you. I think jacking a vibe is lame if you don't put your own spin on it. You know, the whole point is to take something that you love. And make it your own. And I will say, I think Ed Sheeran did that with this song. If you listen to the song, it's awful. <laughs> Again, it's awful. But he did put his own spin on it because Let's Get It On is a great song. Mm-hmm. And Ed Sheeran is doing the same thing and his is horrible. So, you know, in a way, the crappiness of his song is a case for its originality. Yeah. You know, like if, if Let's it were, get Ed if Peoples it were better, on the phone. We got, the, we got like the legal theory that's going to get him out of this mess. <laughs> This would be my closing argument if I were Ed Sheeran's lawyer. I'd be like, listen to this song. Uh, Like, you can listen to Let's Get It On and feel like, okay, yeah, this is like a really kind of sexy song that people would want to put on in their private moments of, of, uh, I'm trying to think of a euphemism here uh, that isn't totally gross. When you're with your, when you're with your uh, partner of choice and you want to listen to Marvin Gaye, you do not want to listen to Ed Sheeran. Uh, this music is not sexy at all. So that proves that he didn't rip off Marvin Gaye because it's not sexy. Actually, I feel like I'm contradicting myself <laughs> in this argument. This is why I'm not a lawyer. This is why I'm a podcast host. Anyway, let's move on here to uh, an equally gross topic, yeah. uh, which is Aerosmith. <laughs> uh, Aerosmith, uh, they announced their long-awaited farewell tour this week. It's called the Peace Out Tour. Yeah, a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of thought. Uh, let's just name it, well, I don't know, Poochie. Poochie okay with everyone? Yeah. Uh, and this just seemed like a good opportunity uh, for us to do yay or nay on Aerosmith. Because, uh, I don't know, this is a band that I think is like very fun to talk about. Like, I could just do an Aerosmith podcast, uh, I think. But, uh, I don't know, how do we feel about 
Aerosmith here, yay or nay? <laughs> How do you feel about this band as they walk off into the sunset? Yeah, I mean, contrary to you know the Ed Sheeran discussion, I do, under these circumstances, have to hand it to Aerosmith, who have had just a fascinating career despite making music that I more or less do not like a lot. Um, I, I like the fact that they inspired one of, in my view, one of the funniest rap lyrics of all time where Dr. Dre says, no, this ain't Aerosmith. Like, oh, I, I thought Let Me Ride was indeed Janie's Got a Gun until now. Um, I think that the Run DMC <laughs> collaboration is like one of the most important moments of pop music in the past 40 years, even though it kind of sucks. Um, I like how they served as the plot engine for Dazed and Confused, despite the fact that the title is from a completely different band. Um, great Simpsons cameo. We could probably do an entire podcast series. Like we need to do an offshoot talking about how important the get a grip videos were to people of our age. Um, and they invented rehab as a career reboot. Um, I like how Joe Perry lived a lot of his life as an alternate history. Keith Richards where like Keith Richards really gets into like weightlifting and he's just super fucking jacked as opposed to the living dead. Although I think if you look at Aerosmith now, uh, they are they are definitely very much in their living dead sort of uh, phase. Oh my god, they look they are the worst looking classic rock man. <laughs> that's like a, that's a, I mean Kiss is still out there technically speaking. I mean I just mean I don't mean in terms of looks. I mean in terms of just like what the lifestyle has done to their bodies and faces. Like they look like they're all in their mid seventies and it's like a hard mid 70s they make joe biden look spry you know (laughs) yeah i mean like like joe perry you look at photos of him and it's like did he die in 2007 (laughs) and his body's just being like weekend at bernie's like steven tyler is four years younger than mick jagger can you believe that shit see and mick jagger you can tell that guy is on a strict regimen of like (laughs) You know, Platelets Pilates. <laughs> yeah, like he's 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 watching what he eats. He's probably getting like, you know, blood transfusions from uh, you know, like he, from I don't know, like like young people. Yeah, like, like hyperbaric getting, chambers, cryogenics, like uh, adrenochrome, all that shit. And then you look at Steven Tyler, and you're like, this guy looks like a fleet of elephants just like walked over his face. I mean, it, it, it's like rough stuff. Also like the, with the Steven Tyler, uh, you know, you have all of the like horrible stuff in his personal life that keeps coming out. Like there's that recent story where he had like an underage girlfriend, uh, in the seventies, uh, and she's suing him now, uh, for like gaslighting her essentially back then. Uh, it, it is an interesting scenario with someone like Steven Tyler where, you're such a known sleazeball yeah. already. Like, can you really be canceled? You know, is anyone going to say like, oh, Steven, like, I'm shocked that this happened. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you, you know, anyone who is on board with Steven Tyler at this point, I don't know what it would take for them to say, oh, I'm not going to support Aerosmith anymore. I mean, I feel like the rest of the world is like already known like who this dude is. Yeah. Maybe they're just um, doing one last tour to like get the war chest up for the eventual, you know, like uh lawsuits. I'm gonna go yay though on Aerosmith overall. I will say I think in the seventies there were about three or four years where they were le- legitimately great. Uh Toys in the Attic, Rocks, both those albums I think are two of the best hard rock albums of of, of that decade. 
And then you get into the 80s period, and you've touched on a lot of the highlights already. I just have to shout out 1989's Pump, <laughs> uh, which was a big album for me uh, sure. in in elementary school. Uh, on the cover, you have two trucks having sex, uh, which isn't even the most ridiculous Aerosmith album cover of that era. Nope. I mean, you have Get a Grip, where you have like the the cow's udder with a piercing in it. Yeah. Uh, which I have called, and this is on Wikipedia now, <laughs> on, the, on the Get a Grip page, I've called that the worst album cover of all time. So I have to stand by that. I, and, is it and worse I, I than feel... even Nine Lives, the one that comes next with, I think it's like what, like a, it looks like a weird sort of like Grant Lee Buffalo or like just a very much a 1997 alt rock on, uh, you know, DGC type cover. Is that the one with the sexy robot? No, that's a just push play. Nine Lives <laughs> is the one with the cat on the cover with knives being I'm, thrown I'm, at it. I'm uh, I'm googling this right now. <laughs> I can't remember the Nine Lives cover. I dropped out of Aerosmith, Aerosmith by this time. <laughs> okay, so oh my, I I love this cover. I have to because it's a cat. Is that a cat? Uh, it, Nine Lives. I'm assuming it is. Yes. Right. Right. Okay. Of course. Uh, it's a cat. Uh, wearing a t-shirt and jeans and it's like what is this it's like jacked it's like, it, this cat is jacked <laughs> and, and this is like an actual cat we're not we're not we're not like steven tower and calling yeah. people cats yeah. uh this is an actual cat with very muscular arms uh the legs are pretty muscular too even <laughs> does though not skip leg day no uh it's it's a blue there's blue jeans on the legs, so you can't totally see how well toned they are, but they're, they're, you could tell in the jeans that this guy is uh, rock hard uh, all over his body. Um, yeah, and, and they're throwing knives at the cat. It's a metaphor. Yeah, Taste of India was. I do not remember the single Taste of India between that and the Hindu Times. Man, like uh, the the late nineties, they they were they were certainly a time. I do remember some of these songs though. Yeah, I don't remember. Is Jaded on Nine Lives? Jaded, um, I want to say yes. That's actually a pretty good song. No, that, yeah. I think that was Just Push Play, right? Oh, man. So, so I'm like, I'm, I'm apparently yeah, like a Yeah, Jaded just is Just Push, push play. play head. By the way, Just Push Play has a song called Trip Hopping on it. This is 2001, by the way. Okay, we, we need to go straight up into Aerosmith cast. Like, what a... What a what a fun band to talk about, even though like most of their music is just complete and utter ass. Yeah, I mean they're a fascinating band. Like you said, like they created the uh, you know like rehab as a reboot yeah. move, which they've done several yeah. times <laughs> in their career. You know they're the band too that like extended their career by bringing in outside songwriters and doing all of these like power. Diane balance. Warren like, and Desmond Child and like just right. All- uh, I'm sure if I were to like look deep into the credits of Just Push Play and Nine Lights, we have not even talked about Honking on Bobo yet. I mean, Jesus Christ. I know. See, this band is a rich text. I mean, <laughs> I mean the, the Nine Lives cover, I don't remember this at all. I'm fascinated by this. I love this cover. I mean, yeah, hard I mean, yay like, the on grip, Aerosmith. The Get a Grip cover is just like unpleasant to look at because yeah. you're just like, what? What do they do to this cow? Like, why do they have to do this? This they learned here because they didn't use an actual animal on the, the Nine Lives cover. They drew a picture of a cat, 
and then they threw knives at it. So now you don't feel bad yeah. for the cat because it's not real. And you're also like, this is such a muscular cat, it could take care of itself in a in a situation. Like it could bust out of this predicament and do some damage to the people throwing knives. Um, so yeah, we're both yay on Aerosmith. Yeah. Uh, even with like the terrible baggage with, with, with Steven Tyler. Yeah, I learned something this week. I was watching... Uh, a video by uh, Pat Finnerty, who I'm a big fan of, YouTube music critic. He does like really funny videos, and he was talking with Andy Green of Rolling Stone, who, uh, among other things, he wrote that great live article that we talked oh, about hell yeah. on the show. And anyway, Andy Green was talking about uh, other bands that he's talked to that are very dysfunctional, and he brought up Aerosmith, and he said, and I don't remember hearing this anywhere else. Uh, before this, but he said that like in the late 2000s, uh, like Steven Tyler apparently was using again mm. and he was like in really rough shape. And the rest of the band was like so angry at Steven Tyler that they were thinking about firing him and replacing him with Lenny Kravitz. Okay. I, I you know what? I, I, you speaking of someone who like really escaped the lawsuit era of jacking vibes, I mean, I, I would be into uh, the Velvet Revolver version of Aerosmith, which actually no, Velvet Revolver is the Velvet Revolver version of Aerosmith. But um, that I, I'd be into that. Like I, I, th- I think that Aerosmith should have been writing like "Fly Away" type songs instead of you know Armageddon ballads. I, I, I actually want that. We missed out there. I mean, I'm just imagining Lenny Kravitz singing, you know. Like love in an elevator. I can absolutely or... hear that. Or do well, I don't know. Dude looks like a lady. I mean, it's not about like it's not I don't know if it's necessarily transphobic. It was supposedly about like poison or like hair metal bands. But yeah, not one that holds up really well. <laughs> oh my god. Dude looks like a do you think they still play that? Or or do you think Aerosmith is sensitive to the cult the, the cultural moment that we're in? Maybe they give like a disclaimer before they do it. I don't know. <laughs> By the way, we talked about like the luminaries of pop music and contributing to 90s Aerosmith records. Uh, we forgot to, of course, mention Jack Blades and Tommy Shaw of Damn Yankees, who made, who did Shut Up and Dance on Get a Grip, which, not to be confused with the Walk on the Moon, or I guess the Walk on the Moon song. Man, a, a rich text. My God. See, there's... <laughs> We might have to do a spin-off Aerosmith cast. Just talk about every Aerosmith album, every music video. Yeah. I feel like that could be a very rich uh, minor material. The song, the song they did on the Beavis and Butthead Experience album. The fact that they called their greatest hits album Big Ones. I mean, you, what, what, what a band. <laughs> that's the most half-assed album cover of all yes, time. Yes, absolutely. The cover of Big Ones. That is so, like... <laughs> We spent, like, not even five minutes on that cover. Um, let's get to our mailbag segment. Uh, I think we have time for one of our letters here. We were going to do two, but we uh, talked way too long about Aerosmith. Or not even, or, <laughs> so or not long enough about Aerosmith. Not, that's true. Um, do you want to read uh, our letter here? Yeah, so this comes to us from uh, Pedro in Mexico City. Uh, first time, medium time. Huh. I would love to know more about what Pedro means by that. But anyway, Pedro loves the show. And one thing he's been wondering recently is why non-English language indie music doesn't break through to the U.S. English media. 
for most of my life, this wasn't really a question. While English language music dominated our airwaves, non-English language music barely made a dent in the U.S. or England. But for the past decade or so, that has been changing with the rise of K-pop and reggaeton. So much that Peso Pluma just topped Billboard Global and Bad Bunny, who prides himself on not singing English, had headline Coachella. However, from my vantage point, it seems like the indie media in the U.S. and England is still focused exclusively on indie acts in English. First, do you get that sense? And second, why is that? Is because indie criticism is deeply tied to lyrics, and it's hard to criticize music in a language you don't understand. Or is it just time constraints given the amount of music needs to be covered? Thanks so much for the show. Best, Pedro. All right. Well, thanks, Pedro, for writing in. And it's an interesting question. I mean, he's definitely right in that non-English music in general uh, is bigger in America than at any moment in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, I mean, some of the biggest stars in pop music, starting with Bad Bunny, who is... Is he the most streamed artist on Spotify? I, I think it's The weekend is number one. Bad Bunny, I think, is like top three or four. Yeah, so, definitely up there. For sure. And then, of course, you have like BTS, all the K-pop people uh, that get a lot of coverage. Um, I mean, the, 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 the simple answer to this, I think, is that when you're talking about acts who don't speak in English, it's really almost impossible to interview those artists. Mm-hmm. So, like, in terms of like that kind of coverage... Um, it's a challenge. And you've seen that like with, uh, you know, a group like BTS, I don't know how much English they speak. Maybe they speak English in their interviews, but I mean, they get covered in places like Rolling Stone because they're so popular. If you do a story on BTS, you're going to get a ton of traffic from covering a group like that. So there's, you know, along with the journalistic reasons that you'd cover a group like that, because they're so popular, it also just makes sense from a publication standpoint, because they bring a big, big audience. Uh, but in terms of like indie music, I actually feel like there has been more coverage of non-English music than again, that, that like that I remember seeing in the past. I mean, I'm thinking for instance of, of like a lot of the guitar music that's come out of Africa in the past mm-hmm. like decade or, or so, like acts like, like Tenorwin and Mdu Makdar, mm-hmm. you know, who have collaborated with uh, English speaking artists and have put out music on like big indie labels here in America. Um, I feel like that music actually has been covered uh, like pretty far and wide. Uh, There's also been like, uh, you know, this bumper crop of like dream pop acts from South Korea, you Mm -hmm. know, thinking of like a group that you like a lot, like parent soul from earlier this year. There's a band I like a lot called say Sumi that got a fair amount of coverage. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm wondering like to what degree would be like the right amount of coverage for these acts. It, it, it probably could be more than it is, but it seems to be in greater numbers than I remember seeing in the past. I, I think there is more of an openness toward this kind of music than there, than there used to be. Yeah, I think what maybe what Pedro is referring to isn't so much, you know, like the, you know, the acts from Africa that you mentioned, but uh, more like, you know, Paranul or Say Sumi, where it's music that sounds like it's very easy to say, oh, yeah, this is indie rock, except in it's, a, it's in a different language. Because I feel like with a lot of the coverage of Bad Bunny or K-pop or even, you know, M.D. Mokhtar or what have you it's very much music from that part of the world. Like it's, you know, it's K-pop. It's, you know, Bad Bunny's music is inherently Puerto Rican. And, you know, Tanarwen is making music that, you know, 
clearly comes from Africa and some of that music, you know, comes forth, uh, you know, it just breaks through in a mainstream way. But I think that you're, I, I think that it's less interesting, I guess, from a critical standpoint or a journalistic standpoint to, to talk about music that is, you know, functionally American or British, except the only difference is that it's in a different language. But I do think that if you are more into shoegaze or dream pop or metal, that's where you might see foreign language bands uh, break through because in in various ways, like the lyrics don't mean as much. Like, I don't know what the fuck my bloody Valentine is saying. So why should I care if, you know, Pink Shiny Ultra Blast, like a Russian band is singing in a language I don't understand. And I think with a lot of emo music, particularly from Asia, <laughs> some of it's actually better if you don't understand the lyrics. Um, you know, but I also think of a band that I saw a couple nights ago called Forest. They're a... Singapore emo band that's been around for about the past decade and they sound and you know their, their music sounds like it was from Philly in nine, in 2009 the big difference though is that you know when they saw them like they were you know wearing like Korean streetwear brands which I'm totally into because man I just wish more emo bands would just wear all black you know they're up on stage wearing like Crocs and shorts and uh, you know, we, we got to get some drip going on in emo and that's what forests do. So, um, yeah, I, I do think it would be cool if more foreign language indie rock sounding bands were covered. And I also get it because it, in a way it doesn't often broaden the discussion in the same way that talking about like Nigerian pop or Afro beats or, you know, hip hop from a different, like from a very distinct uh, cultural viewpoint is. Yeah, I was going to say, to piggyback on your point about how some, some genres seem more amenable to uh, not really caring about the lyrics, I, I think that's also true of like, psychedelic rock. Like, oh, yeah, I, totally. I, you know, like a, a, a band that's been around for a while, like Dunian, is yeah. another example like where uh, I have no idea what he's saying, but you <laughs> don't, it doesn't really matter because it's not, uh, you don't really come to that music for lyrical content. I mean, I think Pedro is onto something that you know, music critics tend to latch onto lyrics, and if you don't have that aspect to write about, it can be limiting. I know, like with uh, M. Du Mokdar, for instance, one thing that was stressed with him is that you know there's like a lot of political yeah. lyrics in his songs. So, but you can't quote his lyrics. It's more about sort of like what the overall meaning is. Uh, but again, you you don't have the ability to dig in deeper as you would f with an English language artist, and the, I'm sure that affects how these bands are, are are talked about. And again, I just go back to how if you can't talk to someone in an interview situation, I I, I think that that's a big disadvantage uh, for uh, you know foreign acts coming into America. Um, and you will see sometimes that they do speak English in mm -hmm. interviews, even if they don't in their music. Uh, for that very reason, you know, it's just easier to promote yourself if you can actually speak the language uh, that the media person is speaking. We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, I want to give a brief mention of an interview with a band uh, named Panchico that should be up at Uproxa today. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on it because the story is just so bizarre uh, that 
I feel like you can spend another entire episode on it. Essentially, it's a band. They had a demo that was discovered in a Nottingham thrift shop and got uploaded to YouTube like 20 years later. Uh, and everyone just kind of assumed it was a hoax, but it turned out to be three guys in their 40s in the UK, and now they're actually making a career of it. So check that out. But as far as, um, you know, straight ahead recommendation corner core, uh, Greg Mendez is an artist that's been getting a little bit of burn for his new album, which is out today. Um, he's been around for quite a while in Philly doing the Alex G, Elliot Smith sort of uh, intimate songwriter thing. And it's really hard to stand out in that realm. However, uh, I think the difference here is, and not to be too crass about it, is that uh, Greg has been through some life uh, over the past decade. Uh, the type that accumulates over the past decade rather than like, you know, a couple months. And that really comes through in the music. So it's very um, soft-spoken, but subtly brutal and also very tuneful. It's got like some of the early Elliott Smith style like melodic construction, which uh, is very impressive. If you know, if you were to put it to like upbeat guitars, you would assume it's like you know a power pop craftsman. And so it's the kind of like intimacy that lets you think like, oh, I'm getting to know this person. So uh, it's self titled, even though it's his third album, but he's got a very very large uh, discography. So we're checking out Greg Mendez. So I want to talk about two. Uh... I guess I'll say deceased singer-songwriters uh, that uh, were in the news this week. The first is Gordon Lightfoot, uh, the great Canadian artist who uh, passed away uh, this week at the age of 84. And, uh, you know, Gordon Lightfoot is of the same generation of, like, all the great classic rock bards that get so much praise. Bob Dylan, Neil Young, Leonard Cohen, Joni Mitchell. Uh, but he often is... <laughs> Aerosmith, but he often isn't put in the same uh, category as those artists. I think because he has more of like a easy listening pop reputation. Uh, and if you listen to uh, you know oldies radio, you've probably heard songs like Sundown and Carefree Highway, and if you could read my mind in Early Morning Rain, all these songs that are distinguished by I think one an amazing acoustic guitar sound, and also. The sound of Gordon Lightfoot's voice, which was this very sort of classic masculine sounding old school folk type vocal that is just so strong and great. Um, I really think that Gordon Lightfoot made a lot of really good albums that are, I think, a little bit slept on. And he's definitely someone that if you are unfamiliar with his music or if you just know his hits, it's worth digging into. I, I would definitely start with the album Sundown from 1974, where... He's sitting cross-legged on the cover with sandals on, and he looks like Walter White from Breaking <laughs> Bad, except he has a beard and curly hair. And then the next record, Summertime Dream, is also a great album. Uh, and you may recognize the most famous song from that record, which is The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, uh, one of his most famous songs. That's also a really good record. But really, any album that he put out in the 70s, I think, is worth uh, checking out. Um, also... Have to shout out my man Warren Zevon, who was not inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this week because the Rock Hall is uh, a perpetually disappointing institution. <laughs> uh, but I, I did write about Zevon this week. I wrote a beginner's guide to Warren Zevon's music, wrote about every album, live records, bootlegs, uh, the great book that was written about him. Uh, so if you've heard Warren Zevon's name and you've heard it, if you listen to this show, but you still haven't dug in, Go on Uprocks, check out my article. It 
I think is a really good way to learn about the man and get into his music. Uh, that about does it for this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. 